Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and today we're donning the cape and cowl for the first of our in-depth reviews of iconic Batman stories. We're doing this as part of the celebration of 80 years of the caped crusader. Throughout the year, I will be picking Batman stories that stand out and digging into their place in the Batman mythos, comic history, and whether they are still relevant today. In the aftermath of the publication of Seduction of the Innocent in 1954 and the backlash against the comic book industry, comic book companies banded together to create the self-policed Comic Book Authority. This organisation worked to set an agreed standard regarding the depiction of violence, horror and figures of authority. Within a couple of years of its starting, a number of popular characters had gone through a shift in tone. While Batman had already started to shift to become more child-friendly in the early 1950s, by the 1960s the Batman comics were adhering to all the rules. Gone was the tragic, dark vigilante that prowled the night looking to fight crime in the wind-swept alleys of Gotham. He was replaced by a brightly coloured sci-fi cartoon that was weird even by the standards of the 60s TV show. He was now dealing with characters like Batmite and lost alien beings. This was fine in the context of the period, but soon sales started to drop off and interest in the character reached an all-time low. By the mid-70s, however, the character was beginning to be given some of his dignity back by creative teams like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, introducing classic villain Ra's al Ghul and bringing back the homicidal Joker. This new direction was more sophisticated and darker in tone. It was a step in the right direction that several other creative teams maintained, but it never really threatened to break the comic book code. Not until the mid-80s did The Dark Knight threaten the status quo with writer and artist Frank Miller. Published between February and June 1986, Frank Miller created the seminal book which appears on pretty much every top ten list of Batman comics today. We are going to be discussing... The Dark Knight Returns. I should warn you up front, this episode is going to contain detailed spoilers for The Dark Knight Returns. Having said that, let me provide a synopsis of the plot. Bruce Wayne, retired Batman after the death of the second Robin, Jason Todd. Ten years later, Gotham City has fallen further from grace and become more overwhelmed with crime and is now plagued by a violent gang called the Mutants. Boiling with pent-up frustration, Bruce lives the life of a bored, middle-aged millionaire. However, following an encounter with two mutant gang members in the alleyway where his parents were murdered, The frustration and resentment boils over, and he once again feels the need to don the cape and cowl. 
At the same time, former criminal Harvey Dent is presented to the public fully rehabilitated and physically healed. Following a news conference, Harvey vanishes and a bandaged Two-Face appears on the scene again. Meanwhile, an ageing Jim Gordon is being forced out of office to be replaced by young Captain Yindel. She has a sterling record and a mission to see that the return of Batman is short-lived. The path of these three collides when Two-Face threatens to blow up Gotham's Twin Towers unless he is paid $22 million. During the fight, the police are incapacitated and Batman confronts and defeats Two-Face. Emboldened by this victory, Bruce grows more comfortable back in the role as Batman. The mutant gang problem is getting increasingly worse. During his investigation, Batman discovers that a United States Army general has been selling the mutants military-grade weapons. When confronted by Batman, the general confesses and justifies his actions by saying he needed the money for, to help his sick wife. However, faced with the consequences, the general commits suicide. Having stemmed the supply of weaponry, Batman moves on to confront the mutants, and especially their leader. He fights the mutant leader in hand-to-hand -hand combat, but is badly injured. Only the actions of a young girl, Carrie Kelly, dressed as a robin, saves him from death. As they head back to the Batcave, Carrie tends to Batman's wounds. Injured but not broken, Batman faces up to his defeat and decides to allow Carrie to become the new Robin. The mutant leader is still threatening to unleash his army on the city, so the mayor tries to negotiate with him, with deadly results. Knowing that he has to defeat the monster, Batman and Carrie infiltrate the gang's ranks and spread a rumour that the leader wants an assembly. With all the members of the assembly, Batman confronts the leader again, this time more prepared. The fight is still harder than Batman expects, but he is able to defeat the leader and show that he is the strongest in Gotham. Without a leader, the mutant gang splinters and a number of the gang members, inspired by Batman, take the name The Sons of Batman. Batman's recent adventures have also reached the attention of a catatonic Joker. He has been unresponsive for almost 10 years, but reports of the Dark Knight bring him out of his self-imposed lock-in. He convinces the doctors at Arkham Asylum that he is sane and deserves to be released. To demonstrate his sanity, he appears on a late-night talk show. Neither Batman nor the police are convinced by the Joker's sanity. The police are in the studio in full force, but Batman cannot let this stunt go unattended. When he arrives, the police attempt to take him in, and a pitched battle ensues. Meanwhile, the Joker releases a cloud of Joker venom, killing the studio audience, and escapes. He heads to Selina Carr's apartment and forces her to plant special lipstick with the power of suggestion on two of her prostitutes, who are being sent as escorts for a congressman and the governor. As a result of the Joker's actions, the congressman commits suicide, but Commissioner Yindel, due to Batman's warnings, saves the governor. Nowhere near finished, the Joker flees to an amusement park where he continues his rampage by killing a group of Boy Scouts and planting a bomb on a roller coaster. Robin manages to defuse the bomb while Batman chases down the Joker. They run through the fair, ending the pursuit in the Tunnel of Love. Joker kills several more people, but Batman incapacitates him, deciding that the evil has to be stopped. 
Batman breaks the Joker's neck. Taunting Batman as a coward, Joker twists his head until the remainder of his spine snaps, committing suicide in order to frame Batman for murder. Batman decides to keep a low profile while he is being hunted. In the wilder world, a conflict between American and Russian troops has escalated, and the Russians have fired a nuclear missile at America. Superman, now a secret weapon for the US government, tries to deflect the bomb and is caught in the blast. He is weakened, but able to recover. The blast thrusts America, including Gotham, into a nuclear winter. In the panic, people start to loot and fight. The sons of Batman have become vigilantes and declare themselves the law in Gotham, using a violent, punitive form of justice. Batman decides to train them to lethal methods. Seeing the events in Gotham, the government dispatches the still-recovering Superman to take However, Oliver Queen, the former Green Arrow and now a one-armed revolutionary, warns Batman of the government's plans. Batman prepares for his battle with Superman and is equipped with a powerful suit of armour, sonic blaster, a mysterious pill and synthetic kryptonite, which he had spent years developing. The two meet in Crime Alley and engage in a powerful battle which quickly swings in Superman's favour. However, when Oliver Queen shoots Superman with an arrowhead loaded with Batman's synthetic kryptonite, Batman wastes no time in taking the advantage. On the brink of victory, Batman suffers what appears to be a heart attack and dies in Superman's arms. At the same time, Alfred detonates bombs that he and Batman had planted in the Batcave, destroying Wayne Manor and the caves beneath. Watching the devastation, Alfred suffers a stroke and dies almost immediately. Bruce Wayne's secret identity as Batman becomes public knowledge and investigators quickly find that his accounts have been emptied and his stocks and funds have already been sold. His body is claimed by a mysterious distant cousin, his only living relative, and taken for burial. At the funeral, Superman hears a heartbeat coming from the coffin and knows the truth, but he leaves. Exhumed, Bruce Wayne now begins a new life leading Robin, Green Arrow and his new army through unexplored tunnels beyond the Batcave, preparing for a new war against whatever enemies may face them. Now that we've run through the plot, I want to take some time to analyse and review the comic. I'm going to break this analysis into several sections. First, looking at each book individually, then at topics that come up throughout the series, such as politics, the book's art, the representation of the media, and if the book is still relevant. I should also state all opinions in this review are my own and of course open to challenge and further discussion. Book 1 The Dark Knight Returns In the opening issue, the journey of Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent run parallel. Both have reached a point in their journey where they could have the best possible lives, but circumstances push them back to the darkness. Harvey is pushed into the public eye by his overbearing and glory-seeking doctors. Feeling pushed, he rebels against possible and perceived humiliation. His growing fear and frustration make him believe that well, being two-faced is the only way to deal with the world. We also find that Bruce has sponsored his treatment and wants him to succeed. This isn't wholly altruistic. He needs Harvey to succeed to prove that it can happen and that he is doing the right thing with his life. For Bruce, Batman is his inner demon. 
the thing that allowed him to deal with his grief, fear and regret, lashing out at the ones he always perceived as responsible for his parents' murder. In this universe, at least at this point, his mission is not completely noble and altruistic. Batman is his catharsis, his way of working through his issues. He has spent ten years not being able to vent these emotions. His returning to the Cape and Cowl is a midlife crisis, running across the roofs making him feel vital and young. Bruce reminds me of Rocky in Rocky Balboa. He's losing all the people around him, his world is dying and he needs to react against it, the only way he knows how. For Rocky it was to step into the ring one last time. For Bruce, it's to don the costume and prove that he can still strike fear in the hearts of criminals. These two men spiral through their downfall, and when they eventually meet, we learn that Harvey doesn't see the cured normal face of Harvey Dent. He sees a fully corrupted face that was the dark side of Two-Face. At this point, Bruce acknowledges his own behaviour when Harvey demands he tells him what he sees, and Bruce simply replies, a reflection. This is the turning point for the rest of the book. He's no longer just doing this to make himself feel better. He is now committed to this course regardless of how it will end. This issue also introduces Harvey's doctor, Dr Walper. I believe that the way Miller depicts him represents his feelings towards the pop psychology fad of the 1980s. He's pompous and self-satisfied, with no grip on the reality of the situation, and willing to put the villain as the victim. I think it's even possible to interpret Walper as a version of Dr Frederick Wortham, the man who kick-started the comic book Witch Hunt of the 1950s. His reaction to Batman is a replication of Wortham's reaction to comics. He declares that Batman is the antagonist, a terrible role model and a result of large, violent social circumstances. This is a debate that is raised throughout the book and is something I'll come back to later. Book 2. Dark Knight Triumphant While the mutants have been a part of the story since the early pages of the first issue, by the start of the second issue they are brought to the fore. The mutants have been an ongoing problem and they represent a pure version of the chaos that Batman has been fighting his whole career. So it's inevitable that he would face off with them. When he does take them on for the first time, it's with the arrogance and self-belief based on his age and experience. The older statesman coming in to teach them a lesson. Think Stallone in The Expendables or Neeson in Taken or any other ageing action star. This hubris is his own downfall. Batman is known for going in prepared, but when he first takes on the mutant leader, he underestimates him as much as he overestimates his own ability and condition. The beating he takes is a wake-up call and affects him physically and mentally. At any other point in the previous issue, Batman would not have taken on a Robin, knowing what had happened to Jason Todd. Taking on a Robin here highlights his need for support, and him understanding that he isn't able to do this alone. However, it highlights the question of why he would allow a child to get into that position. He knows how dangerous the job is, what happened to Jason, and has no way of judging Carrie's abilities at that point. It's a risk, and again highlights Batman continued hubris, and believing that he is always right. Also, Batman makes a further mistake of judgement when he returns and finally beats the mutant leader. He believes that cutting the head of the snake will kill it. But this isn't what happens. Society doesn't have a better option for the gang members, and so they splinter into more groups. 
If Batman had thought it through, he would have provided a better option for them. This leaves an unresolved consequence for Batman to deal with later. Book 3. Hunt the Dark Knight We learn in the first issue that the Joker has been quiet for 10 years, with some of that time spent in a secure facility. In fact, he's been quiet since the departure of Batman. So this answers the question, for this version at least, that the Joker is a response to Batman appearing so many years ago. This is reaffirmed when he comes out of his catatonic state and highlights the love he holds for Batman by referring to him as Darling, a sign of affection and satisfaction that his life will have purpose again. It's like an abusive relationship. I mean, this relationship has been dealt with a number of times, most recently, and brilliantly in my opinion, by Scott Snyder in Death of the Family in 2013, and Sean Gordon Murphy in Batman White Knight in 2018. The Joker's action in the lead-up and during this issue are all about working to achieve a position from which to antagonise Batman, to get his attention. He is manipulating Dr Wolper, using the Doctor's victim position established in issue 1, again showing Miller's opinion of psychologists. When the Joker kills all the people in a public audience, Batman and the police are as culpable as the Joker. The police are at the location and spend all their energy trying to bring down Batman and haven't provided the right level of enforcement to protect and help people evacuate. Conversely, if Batman had not arrived, the police would not have been distracted and been able to protect at least some of the people in the audience. The Joker escapes and is chased down by Batman, and Miller wants to hammer home the relationship by having the final showdown take place in the Tunnel of Love, at an amusement park. This confrontation is topped off by the Joker killing himself when Batman has been fighting the urge to do so for years. By doing this, the Joker wins. He does the one thing Batman could never do, depriving him of the satisfaction and closure, while also framing him for the murder and making him a true criminal in the eyes of the police. Book 4. The Dark Knight Falls Having beaten his most feared enemy, the book drives on to an inevitable ending. The law now sees him as a murderer and a menace, and believes that he has to be put down. However, this is not enough for the result at the end of the book. Something else has to happen, and it wouldn't be the 80s without the threat of nuclear annihilation. When the Russian nuclear bomb goes off, Gotham is flung into a nuclear winter. Looting, attacks and crime massively increase. It's here that Batman has to address the consequence of his actions in taking out the mutant leader. One of the splinter groups has become a hard-line justice gang, calling themselves the Sons of the Batman. It's a bit on the nose, but it's true that Batman's actions have given birth to them and inspired their actions. Therefore, Batman calling on them to do things right to throw down their guns and actually stand up for the community, is the father guiding his sons. It is this action that the government fears more than anything. During the worst of the initial winter nights, Batman not only creates an army behind him, Gotham once again starts to respect him and what he stands for. His actions and those of his army start to inspire other acts of courage, integrity and community, something that figures in authority have failed to be able to do. This issue addresses similar topics in Watchmen. There has been a government-passed law banning masks and costume vigilantes. We're given a list of results of the law. Wonder Woman went back to her people, Hal went to the stars, etc. 
We have also been drip-fed the status of Superman. He has become a government stooge. This part I really struggle with. I have always found it to be out of character. I believe that he would walk away and live a quiet life rather than become a tool of the American foreign policy. I think the depiction in Mark Waite's Kingdom Come is a better representation of what an older Superman would do if superhero vigilantism was outlawed. However, I do also believe that if he felt it was right for the greater good and there was no other way, he would take out Batman. The bigger issue comes up when we learn that he has already taken out a rebellious hero in Green Arrow, having taken one of his arms off. Knowing that he has taken this action before and physically maimed a person, Superman loses all empathy in this story. He's nothing more than a blunt instrument, allowing himself to be used. I honestly think this is one of the worst and most out-of-character depictions of Superman ever. The book climaxes with the fight that has been argued over in playgrounds, chat rooms and forums for years. Who would win, Batman or Superman? For what it's worth, I will always choose Superman. If he really wanted to, he would destroy Bruce in the blink of an eye. He doesn't want to though, he wants to try and talk it out and so we get the final fight and the return of the vengeful Oliver Queen. The choice of Miller to make this whole scenario applied by Batman is brilliant and highlights Batman's strategic thinking. This battle works on so many levels. By fighting he maintains his moral course, regardless of how correct it is. He gets to make his point to Clark and show him one final time that everyone has a weakness. But he is also playing everyone so that he can actually exit the stage, just on his terms. This is so true to the character of Batman, he has finally understood that his actions have gone too far and those in authority need to be seen to punish him, but if it's going to happen, it will happen his way. Faking his death demonstrates Bruce's full arc and that he now wants to consider what it is to live a good life, when of course he was considering a good death in the opening panels. This is growth in Bruce, no matter how small. He has found and accepted a way to achieve something good without using the cape and cowl, to fight the war in a new way, even if he is still trying to fight a war. The final panel show Bruce setting up as a father figure to the sons of the Batman and Carrie Kelly, creating the new Bat family. This further opens up the notion which started with the introduction of Carrie Kelly as Robin. He is looking for a surrogate family. Batman is often considered a loner, but there is always a Bat family. As Grant Morrison has pointed out, in a later Miller work, year one, when Bruce finally decides to become the Batman, the first thing he does is ring the bell to get help. He is never alone. I often wonder if the book could or should have gone all the way and actually killed him. Would this have been as satisfactory an ending as the one we get? What would have been the consequences of that? It would have at least prevented the creation of the sequels. The use of media. One of the most interesting elements of the story is that it doesn't take place in a bubble. While we are all familiar with Gotham City and the wider world of DC, Dark Knight Returns introduces its own twisted version. To provide information about this wider world, the people and events that are going on, some that will play into later issues, Miller introduced the media talking heads. They're a great device, although even with this story they get overused. They work as exposition, the voice of the people, and tone setting. They also act as a barometer of not just the mood of the fictional population of Gotham, 
also as a time capsule of talking points, fears and fads of the decade in which the book was written. For example, the ever-present threat of nuclear devastation, the growing popularisation of psychology and self-help books, and the use of so-called experts by news channels, which is still so prevalent today. More so than any other element of the book, these are worth studying to understand the period in history and Miller's opinion of it. After this book, the talking head media device was used in several comics, most notably Todd McFarlane's Spawn, which often had the same three media characters comment on the situation from different angles. It became annoyingly overused in that series as well. If we are to consider if the book's themes and presentation are still relevant today, think about the 24-hour news cycle and the need to fill the news streams. I can imagine any of the talking head and news panels representing one of the current news shows like Fox and Friends or CNN. The book's art. Miller has a very distinctive style that some are very fond of. I find it hit or miss. His character design is unique and fits the hyper-reality and epic nature of the story, but it's clear that he gets sloppy in some parts and characters just become messy. This is the same for his art all over. There are pages that are incredibly well-structured and amazing panels, and some of his splash pages are fantastic. His choices of pose and composition have made these images instantly iconic. Any one of them would look great, blown up and framed, hanging on a wall. They are art. However, there are also panels that are clearly rushed in design and drawing. I actually find this a frequent critique of Miller's finished art. For example, of the Flash pages, there are two in issue three. The first is Batman and Robin coming off a roof, leaping from left to right. The poses and positioning of the two is dynamic, with details that highlight their personalities. It is one of the most iconic images of the book, and rightfully so. The second is of Superman lifting a tank. In this image, the figure of Superman is poorly proportioned and ill-conceived, while his physiology is pretty much in line with the hyper-real characters of the rest of the book. The details are poorly drawn and amateurish. His arms and torso especially look unfinished and, and just odd. I understand that not every panel will be a masterpiece, but if you're going to do an introductory splash page of a character, especially one like Superman, you really need to be bringing your A-game. Overall, I think the art is distinctive. It's a good part of why the book works so well. I think it would have benefited from a bit more attention in certain parts. Is the book still relevant? Before I started putting this episode together, I put out a tweet asking people what they thought of The Dark Knight Returns. I was expecting the usual hype and exclamations of it being a classic, the best Batman story of all time and a masterpiece. There was some of this, and I don't disagree that it holds a place as a classic Batman story and one of the best graphic novels of its era. But I was more interested in the people that weren't so gushing. Many did come back and agree that large parts of this book have not dated well. However, this is in part to the many copies it has spawned since. The one thread that really interested me was one regarding its use as a tool to teach about Reagan-era America. The idea being that while we have li libraries of books that lay out and explain the events and impacts of Reagan and his government, The Dark Knight Returns acts as a satire and demonstrates more aptly what people thought of the president and 80s attitudes. In the book, Reagan is treated as a caricature, a buffoon, more interested in saving himself by lying to the population than actually leading. 
which makes Superman's blind subjugation even worse. But it is accurate. Much as the current President Trump is mocked, Reagan was also a figure of fun, which of course made the threat of nuclear war and terrorism scarier. How could this idiot in charge protect us? So it can be used as a history teaching device. But there is more. As we have touched on, the book highlights themes of battling inner demons, overconfidence and self-doubt, as well as the relationship between the younger and older generations. When we look around today at the baby boomers' general opinions of millennials and the fear of external threats, I think these themes are just as strong today as they were in 1986. I could easily imagine Carrie Kelly appearing in a modern comic and getting on shelves alongside Superboy, Miss Marvel or Ironheart. The book transcends its publication date and the historical era in which it was released. More than the history, the book comments on the human condition, the need to deal with the issues that burn away at us, whatever they may be, the questions of whether our moral compass is set right, and whether we are doing the best thing to help those around us, the need to be useful and respected for the work we have done and leave behind a legacy that proves we have lived a good life. While I think the presentation and structure are a product of the 80s and have not aged as well as some other works, the content, themes and impact of the story are still incredibly strong. This book appears on so many top 10 lists for a reason. It still speaks to people on different levels and gets them talking. I think this book will still be talked about in another 30 years. Okay, well there we have it. For what it's worth, that's my thoughts on The Dark Knight Returns. I'd love to hear what you think. Do you agree or disagree with anything I've had to say? Do you have your own interpretation? I'd love to know. Please, please get in contact. So, let me know. Also, let me know which other 20th century Batman stories from page or screen you think I should do during the year. Get in contact by email. That's 20thcenturygeek.com or Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr all using at 20th Century Geek. I'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget that 20th Century Geek has got a Patreon page. I would love to say that I'm a billionaire playboy by day and a podcaster by night, but unfortunately, it's not the case. So any donations made are hugely appreciated and all get funneled into making this possible. If you'd like to show your appreciation for the podcast, tell your friends about it or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts because it helps the show be more visible and we can spread the geek love to new listeners. Thank you again, and I will be back. Same bat time, same bat channel. (laughs) 